Ecclesiastes 7. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the days of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom, I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets, and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes.
Mom says, Tommy, life's not fair. We all know this is true. We experience it. Uh, we feel it. We look around and we see people who don't love God and their lives seem to be better than our lives. And we silently ask questions like, why couldn't I grow up with two loving parents? Or why did I have to quit school and go to work? Or why don't I have any close friends? Or why don't I have a spouse? Or why do I seem to have so much money and yet so few people who care about me? Or why is my figure what it is? Or why am I so sick? Or why aren't my kids believers? Or why don't my parents seem to understand me? So questions like this, like this, right? not an exhaustive list of questions, but questions like this run through all of our minds some of the time. Now, these questions are not a problem for those who are committed to the doctrine of evolution. In other words, if, if, if life boils down to the survival of the fittest, well, then you just go about life figuring that nature has given you certain genes, and those genes, whether you like it or not, are going to dictate the outcomes of your life. And so saying life's not fair to the evolutionists is a little bit like being upset that water is wet. Life simply is what it is, which is what a lot of people think. But if you know there's a God... Well, the unfairness of life, all of those questions have sort of a deeper sting. You ask God, you know, why do, why do so many seemingly good people seem to get the short end of the stick while my friend Simon over there cheats on his taxes and cheats on his wife and somehow he still got promoted and got the corner office? Why does God let things like that happen? Praying for Azerbaijan this morning, and those of you tracking the news know that that's just been a very difficult, difficult place to be. And we know that we know that God has His people all over the world, and we trust that there are dear, sweet saints in Azerbaijan and in Armenia whose lives are quite literally being terrorized right now. God, why? So Ecclesiastes seven, that chapter that Kendra just read, is really a chapter about unfairness, perhaps to use more biblical language, the injustice of life. The author is probably King Solomon, but, but he calls himself the preacher. He's the one who, who gathered the congregation together to listen. And the, the preacher has lived a long life, and he sees the righteous die young, and he sees the wicked live to a ripe old age. He sees suffering all around him, and he knows that God has something to do with it. And he's trying to successfully communicate to us what exactly God has to do with it and what we're to make of it. So this chapter, chapter 7, is about how Christians are supposed to wrestle with unfairness, with injustice, with suffering. I've got four answers taken out of this passage. First, learn to lament, learn to lament. Second, practice patience. Practice patience. Third, let God be God. Let God be God. And fourth, know your heart. Know your heart. Now, I don't know what you were thinking as you heard Ecclesiastes 7 being read, but let's face it, this is not the easiest book to read and to understand. I've prayerfully studied this passage. Uh, I have, uh, I've come up with what I think are are four biblical answers to the question of injustice and unfairness right out of the text. But because admittedly this text is a little difficult, you're really going to have to be a Berean, right? And in your own time, and even as I'm preaching, go to the text yourself and, and ask yourself, is what I'm saying about Ecclesiastes 7 in accord with Ecclesiastes 7 and in fact the entirety of God's revealed truth? And meanwhile, I've been praying that God would use what I say, what you read from Ecclesiastes 7, to help you trust him more and better and more deeply. 
All right, so first, learn to lament. Learn to lament. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death and the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Remember that word vanity being vapor. This also is vapor. Now, before you can understand unfairness, what these verses are telling you is that you need to learn to lament it. Before you can really understand it, before you can really be in the process of wrestling with it, you've got to learn to lament it. So literally, as I worked through this passage, uh, I got an email from a fellow pastor who is asking uh, a group of pastors for some wisdom about how to navigate a funeral uh, for an infant. And uh, I emailed back saying, I don't have any wisdom for you, but I'm just so sorry about this devastating news. And I mourn with you from where I am and with your congregation and with that family. I think at that moment, he needed my compassion more than he needed my counsel. I expressed sadness because we live in an ugly, fallen, twisted world. Verse 1 says a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death then, better than the day of birth. That's a strange statement. What is, uh, what is the day of death have to do with a good name? Well, maybe this. Every day that you have is an opportunity for you to fall into sin and to ruin whatever good name you might right now have. On any given day that you're alive, you might stumble and fall, but on the day of death, not only will your suffering come to an end, if you're a Christian, but your reputation will finally be secure. Sin will have lost its power over you. So in that sense, the day of death is, is a friend. Probably the idea behind Philippians 1.21, where Paul writes, For to me to live is Christ, and to, to die is, is gain. Death for the Christian is the nail in the coffin of our sin. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.55, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So for the Christian, death is a doorway to joy and a holiness. But right now, while we are alive, without taking anything away from the promises of the gospel we are able to enjoy in the here and now, right now, in this fallen world, we are surrounded by struggles and trials and worries and even attacks. This isn't heaven. We're waiting for the end. And as we wait, the preacher is saying, as we wait, we're supposed to do more than simply acknowledge academically sin and suffering. We are charged to lament. We're told to grieve. Now, why do I say that? In verse 2, he says, it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. In verse 3, we're told sorrow is better than laughter. In verse 5, we're told that a, a, a word of, of rebuke from the wise is better than a song of fools. Now, none of that sounds very pleasant. Like, yes, please, I'd rather go to a funeral than a party. None of this sounds very pleasant, but it's here. It's the, it's the Word of God. Now, the point here can't be that it's, it's always better to mourn than to feast. Right? That, that can't be the case. We saw in Ecclesiastes 5, verses 18 through 20, that it's good to enjoy life. Remember that a couple weeks ago? Like some of our new favorite verses, right? Just good to enjoy the, the goods and possessions God's given you. Ecclesiastes 3.1 says, For everything there is a 
season and a time for every matter under heaven. So there's a time to feast and a time to mourn. There's a time to laugh and there's a time to lament. And and here in chapter 7, the key thing to recognize is that there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with you if you don't look out over this fallen and twisted world and genuinely lament and genuinely grieve when you see unfairness, when you see injustice, when you see suffering, right? In in this fallen world, there's a sense in which it's better to mourn and to grieve and to lament. So, as I alluded, I think in the pastoral prayer, it's election season, And candidates at all levels of government are presenting their ideas about how to make America better. They are, understandably, they're they're pointing out problems and they're presenting solutions. And, And you and I, all day long, can have vigorous debates about how to improve society. And and Christians can and should be involved in these debates. You can share your problems about what you, you can share your opinions about the problems you see in the world around you. You can even share the solutions you have. Those aren't, I mean, I do think sometimes, especially in 2020, we're just so afraid about talking about politics, lest somehow we be afraid of minimizing the gospel. I think it's okay to talk about these things. But wherever you land on the solution, don't forget to grieve. That's what Ecclesiastes 7 is saying. Regardless of, so for example, just thinking about a, a, a common problem in cities and towns across our land, regardless of why that particular child has grown up without a father, maybe in a bad school system and surrounded by gangs, We can debate all day long the myriad of factors that have contributed to the state of that child. But as Christians, it's our job to lament more than anyone else on the face of the planet, those who know the rightness and goodness of God, those who know Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22, those of us who know what life ought to be, We, above all people, ought to lament at what life is. And so the preacher wisely says it's better to mourn and better to grieve and better to be sad, recognizing this world in which we live. Now, maybe you hear what I'm saying and you're thinking to yourself, like, what good are our tears if we don't actually do something to to help that person, right? Like, Aaron, like, what good is lamenting and grieving? It doesn't, it doesn't feed anybody. Well, I would, I would draw your attention to Jesus. Our Savior was able to celebrate at the wedding in Cana. In fact, I mean, he led the charge, didn't he? And he was able to, to weep at the tomb of Lazarus. Brothers and sisters, we need to learn, like Jesus, to lament Now, very practically, this is why not all of our songs at Mount Vernon are peppy. Some are slow, meditative, even a little bit sad. Like, not led, sadly, but sort of by design, by by virtue of the words chosen, by virtue of the tune picked. They are sad songs And it's not because we wake up in the morning at Mount Vernon and say, I just want to go to the gathering and get discouraged. Give me a sad song. No, it's because it's good to remind ourselves of the the sin in the world out there and the sin in our own hearts. It's how we mourn. It's how we lament. It's how we, we grieve. Right? It's, it's why our services begin with a time of confession. We mourn over what we've done so we can rejoice over what Christ has done. It's why when a friend comes to you with a problem, you don't always need to offer a solution. It's okay to say, I'm really sorry. I grieve with you 
over what's just happened to you or around you. Job's friends served him best when they sat with him in silence. It's why there is even a time to pray verses like Psalm 94-2. Oh, Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? And in fact, I would go so far as to say, if, if you learn to lament, in other words, if you uh, embrace this spiritual discipline of grieving and mourning, you won't be the type of Christian who's simply locked in your closet crying because the world is such a bad place. You're going to be the type of Christian increasingly filled with so much compassion that you're going to get out of your closet and try to do something to help. In other words, I don't think lament is the enemy of action. I think lament can actually be a driver to action because your heart is genuinely moved by, for example, the lostness of your neighbors around you. And the Holy Spirit will use that grief and that sorrow over their own rebellion to lead you to be bold and dig into their lives and bring them the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So I think the more we as a church and as individual Christians lament, I think ultimately the more active we will be. But keep in mind, the purpose fundamentally isn't to be active. The purpose is to be faithful. And faithful Christians are lamenting Christians. How do we wrestle with the unfairness of the world? We learn to lament. Second, practice patience. Look at verse 7. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Now, in these verses, we see that the wise person is a patient person. The wise person is a patient person. Verse 7 reminds us that this world is filled with oppression, right? That's, again, that's why we lament. But it's not enough to lament. We need to endure, right? We must practice patience. Patience is enduring suffering because you know justice is coming. Patience is enduring suffering because you know justice is coming. Let's say little Sally punches her brother Tommy in the stomach for no good reason. Unbeknownst to Sally, Dad is there standing in the doorway seeing everything. Tommy knows Dad is standing in the doorway. So Tommy just receives the punch, doesn't get angry, doesn't lash out, doesn't try to get even. Why? Dad saw what happened. He's going to make it right. Dad, have at it. That's the point of these verses. You can patiently endure suffering because you know that one day soon God will make everything right. Now, in verse 8, the preacher says the, the end of a thing is better than the beginning. Now, in this context, I think the end there is the day of judgment. Now, remember Ecclesiastes 3:17, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. The end, the end isn't merely the end of suffering. The end is the time for the work of God's judgment. And it's in the light of that coming judgment that the second half of verse 8 makes sense. The patient 
in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Because you, the, 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 the proud are not patient. Right? The proud are consumed with themselves. They want vindication immediately. They won't wait. The proud get angry. They take matters into their own hands. They lash out quickly when things don't go their way. Verse 9, bitterness and discontentment consume the proud. The proud are convinced they deserve better. The proud are always looking for greener pastures, never content with where they are, even if those greener pastures are in the past. Verse 10, right? they want the good old days, forgetting that every age has its own problems. Right? That's a portrait of the proud in spirit. But the patient, well, they know that there's no, there's no golden age. Right? Every age is filled with its own sorrow, its own evil, its own devastation. All our days are filled with trouble. The patient don't expect heaven on earth. Right? The patient don't have to be proved right because they know God is standing in the doorway of their lives. He sees everything. He's taken aback by nothing. The patient know this. And therefore, very practically, the patient endure suffering in this present evil age. And this call for, for patience, for endurance, is a dominant theme of the New Testament. In Romans 12, 12, Paul tells the church to be patient in tribulation. Okay, like right now, the pandemic is a pain. I, I get that. We have had no members of our church die from COVID-19, but we've had friends and family members of, of Mount Vernon die. It's not, it's not a laughing matter, but admittedly for Mount Vernon Baptist Church in Sandy Springs, Georgia, our ability to tolerate, tolerate this pandemic, and I know I'm speaking to people who are here, and some of you obviously aren't here. It's harder for you. But just the fact that you can watch me right now is evidence of a certain degree of God's blessing in your life. Right? The fact that we're able to be under one roof in different rooms, and I mean, it's just, it's okay. But what happens when the, the, the heat of tribulation gets turned up higher? Right? What happens when your congregation is being shelled right, by bombs in World War II? What happens if your little house church in Azerbaijan is gone or your Protestant chapel, you know, in Pakistan has been bombed? And, and so Paul says in Romans 12, 12, he says, he says, be patient, be patient in tribulation. In 2 Corinthians 1, 6, Paul commended the church for patiently enduring hardship. In 2 Timothy 2, 24, Paul says that the Lord's servant, the Lord's servant must be able to patiently endure evil. James has the same message in James 5, 7. The difference is that James assures us that patience is temporary. When he writes, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. In other words, when Jesus returns, we won't need to be patient anymore. Right? Tommy just needed patience for a, a second because dad was right in the doorway and he was ready to act. In the grand scheme of things, we too only need to be patient for a second because the day of the Lord is at hand. There is nothing that God doesn't see. There's no wrong that God won't one day right. Regardless of who wins the election, the next four years will not solve America's problems. The Christian's hope is not in Washington. Our hope right now is alive, and he's standing at the right hand of our Heavenly Father. And on the day of his return, all suffering will come to an end. And it's because of this hope, because of Christ, because of this gospel, that you can be patient. So I just want to plead with any of you who aren't Christians to become Christians. You're a sinner, and you deserve hell. You deserve the wrath of God to be poured out upon you. That's what you deserve. It's what we've been singing about and reading about all morning long. But God, in his love, sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to live in this fractured, tormented world 
And yet, Jesus was perfectly patient. He never sinned, not once. He never got sinfully angry or bitterly discontent. He lived a perfect life only to die on the cross in the place of sinners like you and like me. And then he rose from the dead to prove that everything he said was true. And he calls upon us now through his word to turn away from our sins and trust in him. And you cannot be patient in any biblical sense of the world unless that gospel has affected you. Unless you've repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ. Now, please do not take the words that I just shared with you to mean that you should stay in a home where you are being abused or really in any situation where you are being hurt. There is a time for every matter under heaven. There is a time to be patient in suffering. And yes, there is a time to leave. And the only way I can tell you to discern the difference is to seek counsel. That's why God has given you a church. So if you're in some environment when you're, where you're not sure what biblical faithfulness demands, especially in light of this call to patient endurance, you need to seek out counsel. You need to find a friend. You need to phone an elder. You need to get help. I'm not saying you must stay in your current situation, but make no mistake, I am saying that if you are a Christian, even if you cannot escape where you are, by the grace of God, you can endure. And I know that's a radical thing to say. You can be patient like Jupiter Hammond. I've mentioned Hammond to you before. He was born in 1711 in New York. He lived a long life, and he lived the entirety of his life enslaved. Now, Jupiter Hammond is also one of America's greatest early poets. Some say that Jupiter Hammond's writings, imagine how, so his writings are, are, were, were published in his own day, and they've been compiled years later. And scholars looking at his writings today have seen in his work what they call a, a, sub, a subversive resistance to slavery. In other words, Jupiter Hammond wasn't in a position to overcome physically his masters, but boy, could he write. And his writings, carefully read, were able to pull the rug from out from under the insidious system of slavery. For example, Hammond was one of the very first, to the best of my knowledge, he was one of the very first to point out the obvious irony that in the American Revolution you had African Americans fighting a war of independence that they themselves were not able to profit from. He pointed that out. Hammond was a Christian, and he made it clear in his published writings while he was a slave that both slaves and slave owners would one day stand before a holy God and give an account for all their actions. And Hammond had the ear of his fellow slaves, slaves with no earthly, earthly hope of freedom. And at the age of 70, having experienced the indignity of bondage his entire life, what did Hammond write to his fellow slaves? Hammond wrote this. We live so little time in this world that it is no matter how wretched and miserable we are if it prepares us for heaven. What is 40, 50, or 60 years when compared to eternity? Oh, how glorious is an eternal life of happiness and how dreadful an eternity of misery. Look, Hammond never excused the injustice of slavery. But he held up for all of his readers a just God who would one day judge slave owners and slaves alike. And the only way for these slaves to endure this suffering, this horribly unjust situation was to keep their eyes fixed on the coming of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, I bring up Jupiter Hammond to remind you that patience is not easy, but it is possible. Life under the sun is hard, but when you know Jesus is coming back, you can persevere. You can go through life without getting angry, without being discontent, not because life is great, but because Jesus' return is certain. So to be patient, 
requires wisdom. And as the preacher says there in verse 12, it's that wisdom that's going to preserve your life through whatever twists and turns come your way. How do you wrestle with a life that seems unfair? Learn to lament, practice patience, and then third, let God be God. The answer that I'm about to expand upon may be the most difficult answer for you to hear this morning. Let God be God. Look at verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In other words, the preacher says God is sovereign over the affairs of men. God is the author of history. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He, God, turns it, the king's heart, wherever he will. Now, the preacher has already brought up this idea of God's sovereignty in all the details of life in Ecclesiastes 3, 14 and 15, as well as Ecclesiastes 6, verse 10. But it's certainly clearest right here in chapter 7, verse 14, where he says that prosperity and adversity are made by the Lord. Like, if you were signing me up for a religion that said God made prosperity, I'm like first on the list. Amen. But that's not only what the preacher says. The preacher says God made adversity as well. Now, why does the preacher tell us this? Why bring up God's ultimate sovereignty over all of life? Well, here's why. The preacher wants you to know that the only truth strong enough to comfort you in the face of suffering, the only truth strong enough to comfort you in the face of suffering is the truth that God has a purpose for your suffering. And the only way to be sure that God can be purposeful in your suffering is for God ultimately to be over it. A couple of examples familiar to most of you will make this quite clear. Consider Job. We know that Satan persecuted Job. Read the text. There's no doubt about it. Satan persecuted Job. He murdered his family. He attacked Job's body. He took his wealth. Job lost everything. Not everything. Job did not lose his faith in God. And so in Job chapter 1, verse 21, we read Job exclaiming, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Uh, we know Satan is the one who took it away. And yet that's not what Job says. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And that's what the preacher means when he calls God the one who made both prosperity and adversity. Right? Consider Joseph. Joseph's brothers abused him. They sold him into slavery. They abandoned him. Years and years later, after Joseph had risen to power in Egypt and he meets his brothers, he could have paid them back for their wickedness, for their sinfulness. He could have paid them back for their evil. But instead, in Genesis 45, verse 8, Joseph tells his brothers something remarkable. He says to them, it was not you. It was not you who sent me here, but God. But God. He goes on a few chapters later to say what you meant for evil. God meant for good. Job and Joseph knew God ordained their suffering for a reason. God himself is not the author of evil. God himself tempts no one. James, Jesus' brother, put that perfectly well. 
God himself does nothing wicked or wrong, but he stands behind suffering and he orchestrates it for our good. Job and Joseph knew they were living their lives in the palm of God's good and God's strong hand. Last Sunday, I was preaching in Byron Baptist Church. Bill and Rebecca send their greetings. They're doing very well. The church seems to be thriving as well as a church can thrive in the midst of a pandemic. But they've got a brand new pastor in Bill who is very technologically savvy, which is exactly what they needed last March and April as they themselves took their uh, services online. So it's just a great, a great church. And do continue to pray for Bill and Rebecca. Sunday afternoon, though, Bill uh, took uh, me fishing, bass fishing. And uh, I have to confess that I spent a fair amount of time in the boat trying to unknot the line in my reel. Now, Bill was so kind. He kept on saying, let me get you another reel. I'm sure there's something wrong with the line. The thing is, though I haven't fished for a long time, when I was a kid, I did fish quite a lot, enough to know that the problem wasn't the line. The problem was me. So I didn't catch a bass. Knots, knots like that can be really frustrating. Hearing about God's sovereignty, especially his sovereignty over suffering, especially his sovereignty over your suffering, well, that may leave you feeling a little knotted up inside. You're struggling to make sense of just, just how, can, how can God be sovereign over my suffering and yet not be the author of evil, the direct causer of that suffering, and, and I am honestly happy to talk at length with any of you about all of this. But I do want you to know this. I want you to know that it's not ultimately our job to make sense of God. As if he's a puzzle to be solved. As if he's a, an equation to be worked out. God, God is not a knot that we're supposed to untie. So I'm not here to somehow make sense of God for you. I, I'm certainly not here to make God more palatable to you, to make God more acceptable to you. Right? I'm here to present God to you the way God presents himself in the Bible. And Ecclesiastes 7, you know, 13 and 14 are in the Bible. So here he is, the maker of prosperity and the maker of adversity, and you simply don't have the right to deny any half of that sentence. And the preacher wants you to see this so that you can be sure that like Job and like Joseph, you also are in the palm of God's good and powerful hand. He's in control. You don't need to worry. So do you, do you trust God with your life? Do you trust him with the good and the bad, the downhill and the uphill, the straight and the crooked? Jesus did. And you know this. Jesus did. He trusted his Father. On the way to the cross, Jesus in his humanity wanted a different path. He wanted a way out. And so he prayed, Father, if you are willing, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Father, if you're willing, I'd actually prefer not to suffer in agony on a Roman cross until my death. That's what the wrath of God was. But like Job and like Joseph before him, Jesus knew his life was in the good and strong hand of his faithful father. And so he prayed, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And so let me ask you a question. And I don't care if you've got a million dollars or if you owe a million dollars. Right? I don't care if you're in the the prime of life, or everything's falling apart. What part of your life do you need to entrust to God the Father? About what specifically do you need to pray? Nevertheless, God, not my will, but your will be done. 
Right? That's the prayer of a Christian. It's the prayer of someone who believes not just that God is good, but that God is in control. Let God be God. How do we wrestle with what seems unfair or unjust? These are all straight from the text, important. They resonate throughout the entire Bible. Learn to lament, practice patience, let God be God. But interestingly, if I'm right, in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 is, is a section of Ecclesiastes where this little bit ends here. Know your heart. Know your heart. Look at verse 15. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Now, I'll stop there. Some of you are thinking, really, I never knew these verses were in the Bible. There it is. There it is. I can't be too righteous, and I can be just a little wicked. Okay, no, I think that's not what the text means. So let's just keep reading it, and we'll come back. So those of you who thought you had an out to be like a lame, lazy Christian, I am removing that possibility from you. All right, verse 18. It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that... Withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I've not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Now, there's a lot, there's a lot in these verses that I, I can't cover uh, for the sake, really, of time. But I want you to notice that, that our passage, chapter 7, doesn't end with a focus on God's sovereignty over our suffering. It ends with a focus on our heart. Now, let me explain. In verse 15, the preacher revisits the problem that we've been thinking about all morning, that life's not fair. Right? There are righteous who die young. There are the wicked whose lives are prolonged. Uh, that's, that's the way life is. And the preacher knew that. Really, we all know that. How should we respond to this reality? Well, the preacher actually lets us know how some people have chosen to respond to these realities. Probably in his long life at different times, he himself chose to respond in both of these ways. So, for example, you could respond by being overly righteous. Overly righteous. Verse 16. Now, no, this is not like someone can be too holy. No, the, the overly righteous person is the person who is overly reliant on his righteousness, overly reliant on his righteousness. He thinks that he can outwork providence. Right? If I'm just really, really, really righteous, somehow I can make sure that I'm not one of those righteous people who die young. He says, don't be overly righteous. Don't, th don't think you can outwork God's providence. You know, don't think because you go to church, because you pay your tithe, because you serve your neighbor, because you do all the right things, God's going to bless you. Don't, don't be overly righteous in that sense, in the sense of relying upon your own righteousness to somehow get you ahead. Don't be overly righteous. Now, there's another response to this persistent unfairness or injustice that we see in the world, and that's what the preacher refers to as being overly wicked. Verse 17, again, doesn't mean, great, I can be a little wicked. 
But the, the idea is that there are people who look at the world and they say, man, I see the wicked living happy lives. Uh, why can't I live like that? So I'm going to go ahead and recognize that, you know, a lot of people don't follow God. They don't obey his commandments. They don't gather with God's people. They seem to be doing just fine. I'm going to be like them and hope at the very end that God's going to grave on a curve so that I'm going to get into heaven maybe, you know, through the garage door, the, the, the overly wicked. And, and the preacher says none of these approaches is, is good, right? Both, both have a low view of sin, right? Neither really understand what it means to be sinful, right? If the overly righteous understood what sin actually is, he or she would recognize you can ever work, you can never work enough to somehow earn God's favor. True in the Old Testament, true in the New Testament. It's always been true about sin. It's entirely corruptive. And the overly wicked would recognize that, you know what? You know, because of your sin, you deserve hell. And frankly, there's no garage entrance to heaven. But they don't understand the depth and really the, the reality of, of sin. And so the preacher in verse 20 gives us a statement, a proposition, which is really the way to counter these two ridiculous ways of looking at or addressing unfairness in life. He says very simply, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. That sounds an awful lot like Romans 3.10. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. The preacher, after years and years of study, after years of looking for wisdom, this is what he finally concludes. Sin is universal. It is powerful. It keeps us from God. It makes us fall in love with ourselves. The preacher himself probably tried to find wisdom by being really righteous at times. He tried to find wisdom at other times by being really wicked. Just go back and look at Ecclesiastes 1 through 6. But in verse 23, he says, All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise. But it was far from me. He looked for ways to please God, and he looked for ways to please himself. And the more he tried, the more foolish he became. Now, before I lose you, you need to recognize that what the preacher does next is he gives us an illustration. And he actually gives us a very personal illustration. So really, the, the rest of chapter 7, I think, is the preacher opening up himself to you so that you can understand that he knows what he's talking about when he says that inside of himself he was not able to find wisdom. In verses 26 through 28, he reveals what he found on his quest to experience and to understand life. He came to know his own heart. And all of this makes special sense if the preacher is, in fact, King Solomon, an older Solomon. A Solomon, in verses 26 to 28, who is revisiting those days in his life when he traded away his wisdom, true wisdom, to indulge in a lifestyle of sexual immorality practically unbeknownst in all of human history. He says what he found when he looked for wisdom in the sensual pleasures of the world. Verse 26, And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I, I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Now, his description of women in these verses isn't pretty. And in fact, these verses may sound a little bit misogynistic. I mean, women have traps and chains on their hands. They're just ready to devour men. You know, he looks throughout the world and he can find one man, but not a single woman worth having. 
right? It may seem a little bit like he's saying women are the problem. But if you look carefully at these verses, I think you'll notice that he's taking the blame. He's presenting himself as the problem. He may have been tempted by women, and those women may themselves be sinful, and they'll stand before God's judgment for their actions as well. But he knows it's his own heart that's the problem. You can see that, I think, in verse 26. The women weren't the problem, at least not the fundamental problem. The problem was in his own heart, in his failure to please God. If in his heart he wanted to please God, the temptations presented by those women would not have ensnared him. So often we want to accuse others of our own sin. When the truth is, if you want it in your own heart to please God, those outside temptations would have no power over you. You see, the one who pleases God can escape temptation. But the preacher was aiming to please himself. And again, this is the preacher's illustration, right? This is him talking about his own life. You have a different story, but for him, the problem was sexual immorality. So for him, whenever he looked at a woman, what he saw was an object to gratify his own desires. Whenever he saw a woman, he saw a trap because that was his struggle. That was his sin. And I think that's how you make sense of verse 28. He says, one man among a thousand I found. Now, that's not particularly good, I think, you know. I mean, the preacher is a man. He needs friendships. He needs relationships. But somehow, whatever venture into sin he found himself took him away from people, such that in all the kingdom, maybe one man he could find. But when it comes to his relationship with women, it was even worse. He couldn't find one, however you want to read it, one good woman, one upright woman, one woman to satisfy him. But a woman among all these I have not found. It's as if his sin so corrupted him that it destroyed nearly all his relationships and especially his relationships with women. He seems to be saying, yeah, maybe he can find one good man, but not one good woman. Again, I don't think the preacher is pointing his finger at the sinfulness of women, but at himself. Because of his sin, he treated all women as objects. His sinful heart warped his view of the opposite sex. And so he couldn't find one woman to be a friend and a sister in the Lord. His sin twisted his view of the world and his view of his neighbor, and again, especially his view of women. This is the preacher's life. Your story might be different. The preacher is using his own life and his example of the futility of finding wisdom or to use language used by the preacher elsewhere, the futility of finding satisfaction in this world. The moment you make something everything to you, the way he did with women, the moment you make something everything to you is the moment you can be sure it will never satisfy you. Let me tease it out just a, 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 for a moment by way of application, recognizing I'm not going to be able to, to hit you exactly. But men, if you... Well, well, men, I'll, I'll start with you first, since here we've got the Bible presenting probably Solomon in his own struggle with sexual sin. So I'll say to you men, men, if you make women an idol, if you give yourself to sexual immorality, you can be sure that you will never find a woman to satisfy you. One way to make sure if you're married that you're always disappointed in your spouse is to give yourself over to sexual immorality. That's the corrupting nature of the idol of sex. You'll never, ever be satisfied. Every woman will disappoint you, not because they're disappointing, but because you're enslaved to your sin. Let's leave that topic. Let's talk about work. 
which can be something affecting, and frankly, the sexual sin. What I said to men about women, women is true for you looking at men as well. Let me talk about work, though. If you make work an idol, if you make work your everything, every job you have will be disappointing to you, every single job, because no job can give you the pleasure, the satisfaction God meant you to enjoy. Talk about your families. If you make your family, having kids, having a big family, having a small family, having a perfect marriage, if you make that your idol, you're not going to enjoy the simple pleasures of being single and enjoying the families around you, being a parent and enjoying your kids, being married and enjoying your spouse, because you're always going to be noticing how your family fails you. The preacher knows. He's been there. In these verses, the preacher is opening up his heart to us. He's giving us a peek, a window into his own depravity. He's showing us his sin, and he's doing this so that you'll do the same thing. He wants you to look within yourself. In one sense, he wants you to stop listening to me and start looking inside your own heart. Like, what's going on inside you? What sin in your heart is keeping you from loving your neighbor, from serving your family, from humbling yourself before the Lord, who or what are you idolizing? The preacher says our sin can blind us. We can go through life seeing all the ways life is unfair, which is really what Ecclesiastes 7 is about, right? All the ways that life is unfair never recognizing that our biggest problem is not the unfairness or the injustice around us. The biggest problem is our own heart. That's what he's saying right here. Jesus preached perfectly about this. In Luke chapter 18, he tells the story of two men who went to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee was a religious leader, uh, much like a pastor, right? He, he went to the temple, this Pharisee, and he prayed, God, I thank you, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like that tax collector sitting there. I fast twice a week. I, I give tithes of all I get. That's how the Pharisee prayed, convinced that if there was any unfairness in the world, it wasn't about him. It wasn't caused by him. He's a, a pillar of virtue. He wasn't the problem. He was the answer. And then Jesus talks about the tax collector. And the tax collector, of course, being the refuse of, of, uh, of Jewish society, collecting taxes for the unjust Roman Empire, usually pocketing no small amount for himself, the tax collector hated by those around them, a byword for the sinner. The tax collector finds himself in the temple on the same day, already being made fun of by the Pharisee. But like the preacher, the tax collector knew his own heart. He knew his sin, and he was ashamed. He was ashamed of the life he led. Listen to what Jesus said happened that day in the temple. Standing far off, the tax collector would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. See, that's how Ecclesiastes 7 ends. God, there's no one upright. There's not, no, you, you made us upright. But we've all sought our own schemes. We've all tried to make sense of the world our own way. And God, I, I know this more than anyone because I devoted the, the best years of my life to finding satisfaction in a gigantic harem of women. And I ended up sad and alone and more foolish than I had ever been on any day of my life. So long as you brothers and sisters, are most concerned about the unfairness in the world around you, about the injustices that you faced, about the wrongs done against you, 
about the past harms done to you, you'll never appreciate the sin within you. Until you know the sinfulness of your own heart, which is what Ecclesiastes 7 is getting at, it's what Luke 18 is saying, it's what Romans 3 is saying, it's what Ephesians 2 is saying. Until you understand the depth of the sin in your own heart, you will never really understand your need for Jesus to save you. You may have real, real problems, and I hope none of you walk away thinking, I don't care about the problems in your life. I, I do. I want to know you better. I want to be able to mourn better with you. I don't want you to just come to me for counsel. I want you to come for lament. I want to be sad with you. I know you've got real problems with your parents, with your kids, with your work, with your body. I, I know. You should lament all those things. You should be patient in the midst of all of that. You should let God be God. And you should know your heart. More than anything, take your eyes off of your heart now and put them on Christ. Confess your sins. Turn to him. Put your faith in his atoning death and his powerful resurrection. You don't have to be ashamed anymore if your sins have been atoned for by the blood of Christ. Turn to him for forgiveness and peace and hope and joy, grace and mercy, and then by his grace and for your glory. You can laugh and you can mourn. You can be sad and you can rejoice. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your precious truths that we find in Scripture, in the Old Testament and in the New. We recognize our own sinful tendency to not really be able to see past our nose, regardless of how good our lives may seem and in fact be, we are unusually capable of complaining, being bitter about those injustices that we face day in and day out, and we are unusually good at not being mindful of what's going on in our own hearts. And so we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ that calls us every morning to turn away from ourselves and turn toward Christ. Help us to do that more and more and all the more as we see the day approaching. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.